This morning, Esther, the first chapter, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now in the days of Aswaris, the Aswaris who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia, Media, the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory, the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zethar, and Carpus, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. When the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memucon, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucon said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. 
If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimikon proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man may be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, thank you for your word. It is light and life to those who need it. Lord, as we consider living life in exile, living life that is in this place of relativity and corruption and sin all around, Lord, teach us from your word how to think about life in this place. Remind us of great truths by your spirit today and encourage us in your gospel. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to do something that I shouldn't do as a preacher. I'm going to lead with an application. You're like, you haven't even said anything yet. You can't start in on application. We just read this text and as was already pointed out, we didn't hear the the name of God once. And you can go on and read the rest of it and throughout the whole book not find the name of God. The application I'll begin to form here is what are we to do? What should we do when it appears that God is not present? Does that mean he does not see, that he does not hear? Does the feeling of God's absence suddenly mean that he is not sovereign over every single detail of life? Does it mean that he does not see or hear? Does the fact that we have sin in our world, sin in our own lives, does that mean that he does not see? He does not hear? More to the point in Esther, what about corruption? What about when you see this world is corrupt? These systems around me are corrupt. Does that mean that God does not see and know? We should be very grateful for this little book in our Bible. It lets us know that God is, in fact, at work in the lives of his people to save them, even when he's not the main player, the main actor on the stage. God is at work for his people, preserving them, even when it doesn't appear so. As several authors have said of Esther, the presence of absence is not the same as the absence of presence. That was really helpful for me to wrap my mind around the presence of absence 
is not the same as the absence of presence. God is moving things along. So the application really for all of Esther is this. God is on the throne. He's ruling and reigning. What what we just sang is true. Whether people see it or feel it or not, he is. We learned this lesson well in the book of Esther. One thing I want to do in this series with Esther and Daniel together is to show that we have been given a way to appreciate the reality that when God is absent, even in our personal lives, we don't feel his presence, we are invited to know the truth about him, that he is at work. This has been true of man since the garden. We have been an exiled people. Removed from the garden because of sin. In a sense, you can see this throughout the the story of all of Scripture. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We're home, but we're not fully home. We are still pilgrims in this land. Esther's story is actually this... um, This beautiful, woven description of all of that. Sin and threats against the people of God. And God intervening in marvelous ways to rescue his people from their enemies and his. We read this in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Yes, there is a sense in which we will see the rage of a nation against the Lord and his people in Esther. God is not clutching his pearls. God is not wringing his hands. He who sits in the heavens laughs. This is what Esther is all about. Kings setting themselves against God's people. Along the way in this book, we'll see several things and they all take root. Today they begin. Today we'll see the sovereign hand of God at work. We'll see beautiful signs that point to Christ, specifically the divine reversals in the the back. When, When all seems lost, there's a reversal that happens. God reverses the plight of his people. Remember what Jesus told the disciples on the road to Emmaus? As we see all these reversals in Esther, we're invited into this, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Esther has a place. 
And if we read Esther rightly, we are to see our Lord Jesus Christ even here. The whole Old Testament is about our Lord. We'll see our Lord this morning. Uh, we have contrast to Ahasuerus and Haman as we read on. We'll see others who point the way in, to a much greater deliverer. We're going to see the hidden providence of God through ironies and hopefully learn to look at our own lives with eyes of faith. I think we need a bit of historical background here. Before we get into chapter one, it's really fascinating. As we remember some of the Psalms that we have covered, we, we talked about some of these issues. Um, in 761 BC, uh, northern Israel, um, the Sumerian region, um, fell to the Assyrian Empire. Her people were scattered, carried off. Some 150 years later, Babylon has become the dominant political and military force in the Middle East. They come and defeat Judah. They start slowly coming and winning a little more and a little more and a little more until finally they completely take Judah and Jerusalem. By 586, Jerusalem falls to complete control of the Babylonians. If you've read much history, you know that empires rise and fall all the time. That's, that's what happens next. Cyrus the Great, the Persian king, rose to power. The kingdom was north and east of Babylon in 539 BC. The Persian army conquered Babylon, including taking all its territory, including Israel and Judah. The empire was huge. It ranged from Afghanistan almost to Greece, from India, as we'll see, to Kush. You might remember that after conquering Babylon, Cyrus made this, he's the one who makes the big decree that these refugees can go back to their homes. Can you imagine being a refugee of war like this? You're spread all over the empire. Maybe you haven't seen your parents again. Maybe you never will. Maybe you've been separated from your kids and you may never see them again. And you've lived life like this for a really long time. And then the king says, you can go back. You can go back into the land. And here we remember Ezra returning and beginning the rebuilding of the temple. Completed around 516. Some 60 years later, Nehemiah would return and begin rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. While this history, because this book takes place in between Ezra and Nehemiah. The setting is important. It's important because of this. The decree had already been made for them to go back. We're, we're going to look at Mordecai and Esther living their life in the Persian capital city, Susa, and yet they could, technically, they could be back. But several people decided not to do that. God's people, Israel, were still scattered throughout several regions and provinces over a vast area. That's going to come into the story later on. Likely for Mordecai and Esther, Susa was home. They likely lived there their whole life. 
likely they were born there. In any event, their, their lives were located there, and there's nothing in the text to indicate that they want to live somewhere else. They are living lives knowing that they are exiled from their home, but they have now said, this is home. They have reconciled themselves to that fact. We should also mention that King Ahasuerus, known by his Greek name Xerxes, you probably heard that name, and some of the military conquests of Xerxes. We'll hear about his father Darius the Mede and Daniel, his grandfather, I've already mentioned Cyrus the Great, who issued the decree. His son Artaxerxes and Nehemiah uh, is his cupbearer. Um, this family is prominent, even in the scriptures. One more piece of introduction, though God is not mentioned by name or title, we are to look for his providential hand through, throughout the book. We're being invited to. It's kind of the point. It's not mentioning the name of God because it says, look. Look at what he's doing to save his people. We should base our understanding of the story in this. God is working for his people to save and rescue while also punishing his enemies and their enemies. And God can be trusted to save his people. Even when it looks like he's not around, he can be trusted. A New Testament lesson, this parable of Jesus, this tiny little mustard plant, insignificant in the garden, easy to overlook, yet it grows and grows to a vast tree that holds life. That's what's going on in Esther. So today we'll look at chapter 1 and see the greatness of the king's status and empire, and secondly, the irony of how weak he actually is, and then we'll make some observations and applications. The greatness of this king and his empire, and then the irony of how weak it actually is. So our story begins with two big parties, back to back, and these parties are, they would put the parties in the great Gatsby to shame. Like, those are huge, raucous parties. These are bigger. He's celebrating for 180 days, and the guest list is vast. Esther is actually a remarkably balanced book. I'll just throw this in for free. So it begins with a banquet and a decree. It ends with a banquet and a decree, and the action rises and falls. In chapter 5, you have this massive reversal of the plot, and Mordecai gets loose. It's, it's really remarkable. For homework, you should read the whole thing. But here we have this opening feast, and it's a hundred and his um, kingdom is praised for 180 days. It recounts his name multiple times in the opening. It says he's got 127 provinces. Here is the king. Xerxes. Ahasuerus, seated on his throne, holding court with all his grandeur, huge party, all the nobles are there, heads of the great houses of the Medes and Persians, all the armies are in town for the festivities, and it's all meant to impress. Look at verse 5. While he showed the riches of his royal glory 
and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. It's meant to impress, even that verse. Here's a man who supposedly has absolute control over every single thing in his vast kingdom, and his word is law. Several times as we read through the book of Esther, we're being invited to smile a little bit, or maybe even chuckle. It's full of irony. You know, like a fire truck on fire, a dairy farmer allergic to dairy, a marriage counselor filing for divorce, irony. Esther is full of it. It's not enough just to look at the man himself. The writer goes on to say that after a 180-day feast, the officials and the king gives another banquet, this time for seven days, and this time for everyone who lived in the city, not just the royal court, not just the officials. Everybody could come to this banquet. The descriptions here are great. White cotton curtains, violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple and silver rods and marble pillars, couches of gold and silver. Couches. All a a huge um, celebration of the, the no expense spared wealth of this vast king. This was a rich king and he wanted everybody in the empire to know it. The inner court of his palace was designed to stun, literally take your breath away. Everybody come see how wealthy I am. What kind of celebration was this, you might ask? A raucous one. It was raucous. The seven-day party was wild. Verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Further, the author gives us another irony in verse 8, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. It's hilarious, right? You could say it like this. The king gives an edict to say there is no edict. He's a control control freak. But the way this works is normally when the king drinks, you can drink. When the king is not drinking, you don't drink. But he changed the rules. He says, and this isn't a good designation in scripture, by the way, do whatever you want to do. Reminds me of the judges where everyone did what is right in his own eyes. He, he, it's crazy. Everyone is at the seven-day bash to, to culminate the 180-day bash that the king already had and drink as much as you want. Do whatever you want. This leads to the actual weakness of this king and his kingdom actually being exposed. But just think about all the vastness of what Esther has already brought us through. Chapter 1, this great king, all of his servants, his armies, his, the, the vastness of his empire, all these good things. Now, in an ironic twist, it's all going to come unraveled. In verse 9, our narrator introduces another character, Queen Vashti. He spent all this time talking about the king's power and money and prestige, ability to control everyone and everything in his life. 
But what about Queen Vashti? The irony here is that with all of his control, Queen Vashti is the spark for the plot of the entire book. Remember what happens on the seventh day of the feast, the great feast, the king is merry with wine. He sends the seven eunuchs to summon Queen Vashti, this big show of pomp and circumstance. He's drunk. Hey, get Vashti out here to parade her about. I wonder if you notice why he summoned her. Was it because he loved her and missed her? No, verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at, literally a trophy wife. Here she is, right in scripture. Nothing to do with a relationship with him, but to show her beauty to others. There's no hint of true love for his wife, but rather a desire for Ahasuerus to continue with his own renown. He's propping himself up even more. So the summons comes from the most powerful man in the whole empire who had all the stuff and everyone at his disposal. But then we read verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. This is the spark. The queen says no. Here's the supposed great king who has all the stuff and all the power and is making edicts and making edicts about his edicts and she says no. Which is going to be the spark for Esther and it's eventually going to lead to this, this story in which Esther will eventually be positioned providentially by God to put in a word and God would save his people from death. Vashti refuses this king who was over 127 provinces with all his wealth and all his power. She defies the king's order. So what is his response? It's actually pretty hilarious. It has very little to do with Vashti. The court seems more concerned with the cultural impact than the actual refusal. Oh no, now everybody, all the women of the land are going to be saying no to their husbands. All the wives, this is, you're, you're leading a cultural revolution here, Vashti. They're not concerned with the no. Memucon says, this very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say to the say the same to the of the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty contempt and wrath and plenty it's, it's hilarious the decree they come up with this is fantastic they come up with a decree to send out into the land that Vashti's never going to go before the king again isn't that great because what did Vashti say to the summons? No, I don't want to come before you. And then the king, in all his wisdom, with all his advisors, says, the queen may never come before me again. 
David Strain, in his commentary on Esther, uh, says this, if, if we were to uncover the original manuscripts of Esther, I think we'd find in a number of places where the handwriting is shaky because the author is laughing so hard at the absurdity of human power flexing its muscles and posturing at problems it cannot fix. It cannot fix. Yeah, they're going to be laughing. That is, you have to see the irony. Vashti says no, and then the king says, no, you can't come before me. It's hilarious. His power is actually being exposed as weakness. She refuses to come, and then is told she cannot come. This is the supposedly great fix. His impotence as a king and his immorality and insecurity as a leader are utterly on display. Listen to the way he solves problems. Let me give you a new command. I think sometimes our own hearts gravitate towards that as well, don't they? If I can't get my kids to obey, I'll just give them a new command. Utterly being exposed. So what are some of the lessons that we are to learn from chapter 1 about life in exile for the people of God? I think one lesson is this. It's very simple. Certain situations in life demand that we make choices. I'm going to say that again. Certain situations in life demand that we make choices. Resistance to the power of this world is absolutely possible for believers, but you have to choose to do that. Vashti certainly doesn't play a central role in the book, but from the first chapter we learn that the power of this earthly kingdom is not ultimate power. Everyone else seems to be joining in on this 187 days of feasting and drunkenness. Vashti gets summoned, and we're not speaking to her spiritual condition, but she gets summoned to come into this, and she says no. Have you ever heard the expression, they jump off a cliff, would you jump off too? My mom used that on me all the time. Why do you want to go to that thing? I don't know, I want to go, my friends are going. Then she would proceed if they jump off a cliff. We've all heard that, right? This is a part of what it means to live as a people in exile. We make decisions about the way that we interact with this world and the kingdom of this world. I think the lesson holds here. Second, I think um, another clear application is don't mistake earthly power money, prestige, and glory for ultimate power. Don't mistake earthly power, money, prestige, and glory for ultimate power. God's power is greater. God owns everything. God is due all glory. Too often in our political climate, I see people time and time again making their political party or their chosen candidate or their chosen stance, the ultimate stance, the ultimate candidate, the ultimate position. We do this in politics, but I think we do this all the the time with other things as well. We elevate trivial things every single day, social media. 
My word, what power, what influence does it have over your life? And to the extent that you begin to see things like that as actually ultimate power. Like this thing said about me or directed toward my position or against my position either gives me life or makes me feel like death. Trivial things, consumerism, popularity, status, we could go on and on and on. We make little kingdoms everywhere. Asuerus had a big kingdom, he did. The kingdom of the Medes and Persians had had taken over the, the kingdom of Babylon. It was vast. He had a lot of power. He had a lot of wealth. He had a lot of money. And, and his kingdom is still ex- exposed as nothing compared to the kingdom of God. And we think moving about in our lives, we have these things that are actually very small that we make ultimate. first chapter of Esther should teach us a solid lesson that the pursuit of such little kingdoms is vain and laughable. Just as Xerxes changed on a dime from his call to his wife to a decree of banishment, so too the things of this world change on a dime. I love the parable of Jesus in Luke 12. He he told them, I'm just going to read it to you. He told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I think that's what's going on here. This kingdom looks great. All this stored up treasure and it can be gone in an instant. That's what the kingdoms in this world. All that King Ahasuerus had could not make him content. Again, remember Psalm 2. All the raging and plotting of the nations mean nothing before the great king and God overall. What does God think of all the power and politics and plotting of the nations of the earth? Well, fortunately, we have uh, just such a reflection in Isaiah 40. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel or its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. This is all the nations on the earth. They are like dust on scales to God. You could take an entire nation and it wouldn't be a satisfactory sacrifice. Don't mistake earthly things, earthly kingdoms for the substance of the kingdom of Christ himself. Live out the values and blessings of the kingdom of God. A third lesson is this, be patient, God is at work. We learned this last week in Psalm 89 when Ezra 
Ethan the Ezraite was impatient for the promises of God and he wanted to see those promises fulfilled in a way that he wanted to have them fulfilled. In our text today, we wonder where God is. The king of the Medo-Persian empire is throwing a party. Where is God? The king's supposed glory and magnificence is on display. Where is the true and living God? The king and his subjects are acting in hedonistic ways. Where is God? Vashti turns down the king. Where is the true and living God? The king issues a rather pathetic decree. Where is God? We don't have all the story yet. But the answer in all of this is God is at work. He sees, he knows, he is going to save his people. He is using this no by Vashti to do just that. God is going to raise up Esther and put her in the place of Vashti. God is getting, he's going to raise up Mordecai and place him exactly where he wants him to be at exactly the right time. God is going to do all of this to save his people from death. Not in ways that we expect. Quietly. We might not have any clue what God is up to in our day. Our days might be filled with immense suffering like we saw in Psalm 88 and 89. Our days may pass us and look rather mundane. We're just starting back to school. We haven't been in school long enough for it to get mundane yet, but that is coming. One day just leading into the next, and it feels, Wednesday feels a lot like Tuesday. Mundane every day. And in those times, it might feel like God is distant, removed from us. However, we see in Esther that this is not the end of the story. Even in the mundane, God is at work. God is absolutely at work. Our last application is this. Esther 1 is about a great king, Asquerus. But what we see once we read about this king is that we, we need the reality that he could never fulfill. We need a better king. We need a king that doesn't glory and pleasure in his own worldly and earthly success. We need a king that doesn't glory in the bride to make himself look better. Remember Ephesians 5. Christ glories in his bride, his church, his people to make us more beautiful. He is not self-serving. In short, when we see the lavishness of King Ahasuerus, we are left longing for Jesus Christ himself. We need one who doesn't say, hey, you're going you're to die for my pleasure, but rather Christ saying, I'm going to die to save you. In Mark 10, Jesus talks to his disciples about greatness. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the great King that, that we receive, came to, to serve us and lay down his life as a ransom 
for us. This is the king that we get in Christ. We get a king who, yes, gets robed in royal robes, but in order to mock him. Yes, we get a a king who wears a a crown, but a crown of thorns to, to mock him. So that he could serve us and lay down his life as a ransom for us. His invitation, this great king's invitation is a fantastic one. He said, Jesus says, come to me. Are you weary? Do you need rest? Jesus invites us to come to, to him as king who laid down his life. He has paid a ransom for your sin to God. Come to this king. He is gentle and lowly and you will find rest. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the ways that you, Christ, are greater than all the glory of earthly kings, or their glory simply pales in comparison with you. Or may we, in the midst of the earthly power and earthly kingdoms, may we seek the heavenly power, the heavenly king. Lord, thank you for being this good king who served us and laid down your life as a ransom for us. Lord, shape us in these things, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.